uh, as we look at this series called All Things Newish, I want to consider if Jesus has the power to overcome death and he lives in me, how does that begin to transform my life in everyday and ordinary ways. See, we have this idea of transformation should be a big splash. But I would contend that sometimes someone working the steps of sobriety for 20 years is equally as transformational as something that happens in an instant. And so most of us have to endure and even put out daily effort, daily disciplines, so that there is this internal work that's happening within. Now, I would say it this way, that every person needs a sense of identity for life to actually be meaningful. But the problem is, is when we start to talk about identity, it gets a little cloudy. We, we, we kind of have this vague awareness of what identity is, but we don't know how to work on our identity. And so what we do is we put ourselves into a lot of places to achieve recognition, which always leaves us very vulnerable. What I want to talk about is a new identity in Christ. And what I think we need to know at a foundational level and beyond a shadow of a doubt is that we're not only loved, but our life has purpose. And that someone in the universe is irrevocably and unconditionally for us. Let me stop right there. Imagine if you believed the idea, the audacious promise that you are irrevocably and unconditionally loved, would that change your levels of joy, levels of confidence, levels of hope? I think if we can live into that reality, our lives can be changed from the inside out. Um, The good news is that God is saying, I've given you a new identity in Christ if you would only receive it, but then if you'd only believe it. See, I think we live way below our inheritance. We live below or beneath the promise that God has instilled a new identity into us and for us. And so that's kind of what I want to consider today. Now, some of you might be aware of a brand that came out in the late 90s. It was a surf brand that appealed to this alt community of skaters uh, and surfers, and it was called Jedediah. Jedediah was started by a friend of mine back in San Diego, and he had, he was a surfer himself, he liked to skateboard, he liked to snowboard, except that he had had this relationship with Christ that he felt like had changed his life despite his broken home. And he saw a whole community, a whole subculture that was so far from God, and these weren't the people that were coming to his church. And what he wanted to do was attach a name. And the name Jedediah, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, comes to us meaning beloved or simply loved by God. And so he developed this whole label, I am, you are, Jedediah. In fact, you could peel up the inside tag on the inside of the shirt and it would say, I am, you are, as if you needed a reminder every day on what's on the inside that you might not believe it, you might not know it, you might have never experienced it, but you are in fact loved by God. 
See, I am and you are Jedediah. But most of us don't live with that reality. Most of us live like we're skating through life on thin ice because maybe some bad parenting experience or maybe some like bad boss experience. Maybe we filed for bankruptcy. Whatever the case might be, we feel like one tra- we're one step away from tragedy or crisis or heartbreak. And what I'm saying is, that doesn't discount the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. That things can be made new. And God is about the restoration of all things. And so our identity is fundamental to understanding the power of the resurrection. Now, I'm going to encourage you maybe to open up the app. There's some outlines in there. There's a a passage of scripture that I want to work through in detail. I want to make observations about scripture. So it's going to help for you to follow along. Maybe you even jot some notes as we go. But I have an outline. And and this is the passage that comes to us out of 1 John. As you're turning to 1 John chapter 1, uh, it's a short chapter. But I want to go through it and just make some observations as we go. Now the thing that we need to understand is new identity in Christ is not something that we earn or achieve. In fact... New identity is in spite of who we are. And so in the same way that we can be born into a loving family and still rebel, still reject that family, still reject that namesake, we can also be spiritually saved and virtually unaffected. This is the problem, I think, plaguing Christianity today, is that so many people have sort of been saved or believed, but we're not acting like we've been changed with a living gospel. We have a whole society full of church attenders without being church apprentices, Christian apprentices. So we have this belief without a practice. And what I'm suggesting is this is more than just behavior modification. This is a new identity that we get to live into. And so as we go through this, let me just make some observations. The the title of this says the word of life, which is the incarnation of Jesus, the manifestation of God in human flesh. And it says in verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at uh, and our hands have touched this, we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and, the, <clears throat> and appeared to us. We proclaim to you what, was, what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. The first thing that I would simply say out of this passage is that when we experience a new identity or new life, remember, we're answering the question, how now shall we live in light of the resurrection? New life leads to a new conviction. If you've been touched, if you've experienced God in any way, there is this new conviction that since God has changed me, it certainly has the power to change someone else. So the question becomes is how is and in what ways is God changing you from the inside out? How has God, over time, shaped your hearts, your desires, your motivations? Because now we have this growing awareness of a new conviction. 
And what we have seen, we now are able to articulate to others. And this is the good news. Not something that we know, but something that we share. And if it's affected me, how can it not affect someone else? No one can argue with personal experience. And if you've had an experience with Christ, you know and and can see a growing conviction the more you give yourself to it. So how do we shape this new identity? I think over time, we have a growing conviction. My son yesterday, I was in College Station, and he was noticing that I put the golf, not the golf cart, the shopping cart in the rack. It was not near where I was parked, but I have this thing when I get into a parking lot, is that I hate it if there's cars running through, especially if it's on a windy day, because how many times have you come back to your car and someone's opened their car into it, or a shopping cart runs into it? I, I have this thing with chipped paint and taking care of property. So I'm always the guy that wants to put the shopping cart away. And he comes out, because he had stopped for something else, he comes out and he sees me, and then he gets into the car and he tells me this report. And I didn't know quite where he was going. And, and it was this statistical data on what it looks like when someone puts away their shopping cart. And I was like, okay, I, I think this is going to be a compliment. He says, people who put away their shopping cart are, are self-motivated people because there's a suggestion there, but there's no mandate to do it. So those who would do it, it's like making your bed. It's a nice idea, but those who do it have, are, are, are self-motivated and accomplish more in life. They don't need direct supervision. They just do what's the right thing to do or what is the courteous thing to do. And I'm like, and then he said, it's who you are when no one's looking. And I was so proud that my son is thinking about these things. I wasn't doing this just because I I just don't like carts rolling through the shopping shopping center lot. But he paints this picture of what it is to have this internal conviction. And what I'm saying is the more you follow Christ should break your hearts in more ways. It should sensitize your heart in increasing ways so that we care more and we sacrifice more. So that we give more and we even pause more in a level of patience. This is what it means to have our identity shaped with a growing conviction. Let's read on. This is verses 5 through 7. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And so what we see in this new identity is a new humility, a new humility. Do you have a growing entitlement or do you have a growing humility? Is there a growing sense of righteousness or a growing sense of entitlement? I remember returning home from our uh, one-week honeymoon, and our apartment was filled with boxes and gifts still to be unwrapped. And the thing that struck me was our entire registry was full, and I am opening up gift after gift from people I hardly knew. It was one of the most humbling things for me because it was people who didn't necessarily know me that well, but they loved my mom and dad. 
They loved Laurel's parents. They loved our family. And I just happened to be the beneficiary of it. What Christ has done for us should not become so familiar that we lose a tenderheartedness, a humility of what the sacrifice has been for us. See, humility is not simply thinking lowly of ourselves, but accurately. It's owning who we are and learning to steward it. Christian humility recognizes that my life was bought with a price. A debt was paid, and while I can do nothing to earn it, I also don't want to minimize Christ's sacrifice. So when we start to shape a new identity, we have a new and tender conviction. When we start to develop and discover this new identity, we have sort of this growing humility about what has been afforded us. I didn't really do anything to earn those wedding gifts any more than I did to earn this gift of salvation. But the resurrection changes everything. The third thing is verses 8 and 10 we see. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I thought this was a weird verse because I don't know one person who would say, I am in fact perfect. I have no sin. But I guess in in, in this era, people thought they were better than they were. And so he goes on to say, but if anyone does sin, i.e. the rest of us, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. We have this advocate, the, the Father, uh, the, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also, not only... Uh, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, what we see here is new identity means a new awareness. That for as much as Christ forgave me, he can forgive another. There is this tendency to not want to afford someone else forgiveness because it feels like I'm letting them off the hook. I don't want to give them that privilege of being forgiven. No, I'm going to hold on to my resentment. I'm going to hold on to my disdain. I'm going to hold on to my hate or my memory of what they did or said. And what I'm saying to you is if you have experienced forgiveness, you too now should understand that this creates a new awareness that they need it as much as I do. I need it as much as they do. And it makes the whole proposition of new life Maybe just palatable. It doesn't make it easy. The last thing comes at the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, my dear children, I write this so, to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, you will have one who speaks on my... Sorry, I just read that part. Um, and the, the one thing I would say is identity creates a new direction. So the fourth thing I would say is when we start to find ourselves in Christ in light of the resurrection... It causes a pivot in our lives. And when the desires of our hearts change, when the motivations of our hearts change, when the attitudes of our hearts change, it can't help but create a new direction. You can still be in the same career path. You can still be in the same economic bracket. You can still be in the same struggling marriage. But what it does is it shapes this directionality of Christ is present and in all things. Now with that awareness... How should we live with the present reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory? You know, in ancient times, when you got to naming a child, um, 
it was more than a label for identification. So when you picked them up at the nursery, you could say, which one's mine, instead of just holding you up and going, which one looks like mom and dad. You know, it's not that picture. The idea of naming of child uh, was supposed to describe something about their character or their essence. And you're like, wow, how long would they wait to name that child? But because that was true, a name wasn't going to be disassociated from someone's actions or their essence. Naming often came after the birth. Now, I don't know how long after, but the idea was there would be some moment, some moment where an, an event occurred, a divine inspired event, or, 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 or someone said something, or, but it would help capture the moment. And so a name was often associated with someone's being. So when we talk about and pray the names of God, what we're saying is, I believe you're this because I've seen you're this. I believe you're a provider because you are a provider. So you understand the names and the acts can't be mentioned. So here's where it gets really interesting. I referenced the story of Jedediah. Jedediah came from David and Bathsheba. Not child number one, but child number two. David, as you remember, was an adulterous man who took this woman, got her pregnant, and then had his, her husband killed in battle on basically a suicide mission. God begins to do a work in David's heart. But even though they give birth to this child, the child dies. David is just praying and fasting. He doesn't eat for a week. God meets him in this place. He takes his wife now, because he took her as one of his wives, and and they give birth to a second son. And this would be the son named Solomon. Who, by the way, is in the line of Jesus. Who, by the way, God would redeem and restore this, this godly heritage. Wait, how could that heritage be godly? That's illegitimacy and God makes it legitimate. I mean, this is something redemptive. This is something redeeming. Here's where it gets kind of fascinating when you look at the naming. Solomon says, I want to name him, uh, excuse me, David says, I want to name him Solomon, which comes from the Hebrew word meaning shalom or peace. Now, God had already said that, David, you are not going to build my temple. You've been a God of war, but now it's going to be an era of peace for you. God sends word through the prophet Nathan, and the name comes from him and says, I want you to name him Jedidiah. It was not uncommon to have more than one name because I want you to understand that even though you have faltered, even though you have done the unthinkable, even though you're, you, you've murdered, and you, you are still beloved. You are still my child. See, this is what it means to take on a new name. This is what it means to live into the, this new reality of I am God's child. I, I bear the name Christian, which doesn't have a lot of marketability today. It creates a, a, a strong polar reaction oftentimes. So when we come to the communion table, what we're really doing is identifying with Christ. And I want to talk a little bit about this as we prepare for the communion elements. Because when we come to this, um, we have two key moments in the communion liturgy. In the communion liturgy, there's two words that we mostly don't talk about. They, it's not something understood. Uh, we understand it, but we don't talk about it. And these are the two words. They're tricky words. They're Greek words. But one is anamnesis, and the other is epiclesis. I know that sounds crazy, but let me break it down to, to understand this. 
anamnesis, which sounds a little bit like the word amnesia, which we'll talk about, anamnesis literally means remembrance, to remember. And Jesus spoke of this all the time. He says, do this in remembrance of me. You didn't realize that's what you're doing? But all this time we've been taking communion and sometimes we have big tables up front engraved, do this in remembrance of me. We are remembering him. Now the second word, epiclesis, literally means, it's like an invocation. It means to appeal to or to come. So when we pray over this cup, we're praying for the Holy Spirit to become the literal body and, and, and just to live the life that we're called to live that we can't live on our own. This is not just crackers and juice. We're inviting something spiritual, something sacred to take over our life. Now, oftentimes when we take communion and we do this in remembrance of him, it's kind of typical to just conjure up images of the cross, Christ's suffering, his pain, his torture and execution. None of that is wrong, But here's the thing, amnesia isn't just forgetting something, amnesia is forgetting who you are. Anamnesia, which is the word that Jesus uses, is not forgetting who you are. So when we take this cup and we break this bread, we are saying, and this is, you know, do this in anamnesis. We remember that you've already chosen me with your life. We remember that Christ has already chosen us and we've chosen him and we're remembering who he is in light of who we are. The temptation is to come to the Lord's table and feel inadequate. The temptation is to call for repentance and feel unworthy. Like I can't approach the throne room of God. And what Christ is saying to each of us as his child is saying, don't forget who you are in light of who I am. You are my beloved. Your life is not your own. Anamnesia is this beautiful reminder that we are in fact Christ and our lives were bought with a price. And so when we drink of this cup, it becomes part of us. We ingest it. And he's saying, remember our identity and our life is not our own any longer. So here's what we want to do. We want to just give you some directions on how to do this. I'm going to invite you to just come down the center aisle during this next worship song and then just kind of peel off that way so we have a consistent traffic flow going around. And we're just going to take the next song to, to, um, to, to sing a song and prepare our hearts and then we're going to have a time uh, of, of communion together. Just take these elements back to your seat and we'll pray together and partake together. Our Father in heaven, prepare our hearts now. Remind our, us of, of who we are in light of who you are. I pray that the things that limit our joy and our hope, our confidence and our peace, I pray that the things that the devil uses to remind us of our inadequacies would be no more. I pray that we would see only ourselves in light of who you are 
and we would find our comfort and our confidence in that alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.